You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. My name is Ryan McGee, and I'm coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. And joining me, as always, in Southampton, England, is our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, I have been up since 4.30 a.m. Why? Uh, I got up at 4.30 a.m. to watch the NRL Grand Final between my South Sydney Rabbitohs and uh, and Penrith uh, this morning. Who won? Penrith did at the very end. It was heartbreaking and sad, and I don't really want to relive it. So South Sydney come in second this year in the NRL. It was sad. I'm sorry. Yep. Yep. It is what it is, man. Yeah. <laughs> how are how are things in England? Uh, it's rainy. That's all I got. <laughs> Do you want to talk about some curling? Yeah, I would love to talk about some curling. There's a lot of stuff going on, uh, especially here in the U.S. in terms of news associated with new clubs and clubs opening up. So uh, I know where you want to start. Do you want to do, you want to do the honors? Do you want to talk about the video, you mean? Yeah. Uh, this week in viral curling. Yeah. So what I mean so USA curling did a thing with the late late show right with James with James Corden, Corden. Mm-hmm. who I think actually has also done a come try curling thing on a British TV show there's like a show of like I can't remember the name of it is on Sky Sport um Oh so James Corden was a ringer Uh I I can't remember if he was with the group like he was at some point in time he was on this show and it's basically the premise is like British comedians and like kind of when James Corden was kind of a B-list celebrity, kind of the B-lister celebrities go and try a different sport every week. And he they did that maybe five, six years ago at uh, Fenton's Rink. I'm pretty sure he was already in the U.S. five or six years ago. He still does like stuff here because he's like, okay. I, I, he's probably not fair to say as a British B-list celebrity. He did like a pretty big TV show here called Gavin and Stacey about a, more than a decade ago now. But um, that was kind of his big breakout here before he broke took off in the u.s but um anyway what do you think of the video this is where my head went as a marketing person and you can look up what bill hicks had to say about marketing people and apply it to me uh but the first thing i thought was wow this is really great brand synergy with columbia sportswear (laughs) so there's a bit of product placement (laughs) just a little bit just a bit yeah and then uh, he had uh, James Corden took his staff out to the Southern California Curling Center, and it was like ten minute, a ten minute segment on a pretty fairly big late late. Uh, obviously, the late late show comes on uh, very early a.m. But uh, yeah, pretty big to have ten minutes worth of curling on on one of those late night talk shows, huh? Yeah, I I think I think it was pretty good. Um... The lineup, you could tell the USA gave no cares, shall we say. 
<laughs> so, um, I will say it was awesome to see our friend Oyuna Aranchameg out uh, playing on Team USA against Team Late Late Show. That was pretty cool to see. Yeah. she had a couple of she had a couple of really good shots there in that in that end that they played. Yeah, so it was great to see Oyuna. So ba- so basically, the premise was John Schuster would coach the Late Late Show team, which is basically staff writers from the Late Late Show plus James <laughs> Gordon, and then. Team USA, I, I guess basically the idea was they had one player from each discipline, I guess. So the thinking. Because the mm-hmm. Hamiltons, and then they had Tabitha Peterson, and then they had Chris Plies, and they had Oyuna. So, mm-hmm. and they all kind of, they, it was, you know, they, they basically played an end. We won't, yes. we won't spoil it for you, but uh, yeah, I liked it. What did you think? No, it was great. It was great to see USA curling on. With that long of a segment, usually when you get that, you get like, you know, four minutes and it's, oh, here's uh, just the montage of people falling down. And here, like the montage of people falling down was only like 10% of it. Yeah. And you had most of it devoted to them actually trying the sport. Yeah. Uh, which I think, I really think that this is only possible because that new curling facility has opened up there in Southern California. That that helps a lot, right? Because it makes it easy for TV shows and movies to use. I'm sure. I'm sure that'll get a lot of action for that. Um, it's. I. It, I mean, there's going to be a lot more of this, right? Like every Olympics, mm-hmm. USA, USA curling's got a long history of doing this well in terms of kind of capitalizing on viral marketing and partnering with advertisers and figuring out ways to get kind mm-hmm. of more curling related coverage in the U.S. I like the fact they didn't waste time explaining what curling was. And I also like yeah. the fact that it wasn't it the, the the joke in the past has sometimes been curling's easy and then they do it and they're like, oh, it's harder than it looks. This time the joke was actually you've got no shot against this team of <laughs> pros, which is which is actually progress, I think. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, it was fun to see, and uh, hopefully we'll see a lot more of that, and uh, hopefully a lot more brand synergy because hopefully the U- uh, USA Curling can continue to bring in partners uh, like Columbia that can help help fund the program uh, even more so than than has been in the past, and hope hopefully some of that money can trickle down to uh, to the grassroots. Hopefully we're not talking Reagan trickle down economics here of it getting down to the grassroots, but hopefully hopefully some of this money gets down to uh, gets down to growing the number of curlers in the U.S. Yeah, Ryan, I got a marketing question for you. Okay, why don't we have any brand synergy? Because every time that I talk good about a brand on this podcast you immediately just dump all over them like that's why isn't my value as an endorser worth so much more now because i'm like shown as being very finicky and so if i endorse something uh it means something or i've been paid a lot of money (laughs) no that's not how this works (laughs) (laughs) that's not how any of this works so marketing you you can't be honest in marketing why on earth would you do that? <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, Jonathan. <laughs> oh. And hopefully, um, you know, some other very fun cities uh, look to be getting dedicated curling facilities here in the U.S. as well. Congratulations to our friends at San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club. Uh, We've talked about this before in the show, but they had been 
uh, going through with a final push to try and fund, but try and fund the completion of their dedicated curling facility, which, um, you know, you can go to their website and kind of read the history of just all of the batty things that they have had to go through to get to this point. But it looks like they have met their fundraising goal and they have voted to go ahead with finishing the facility uh, with the funds that they were able to raise. So hopefully that gets completed. One of the things that they brought up um, when they were pushing for this, and it did, it, it kind of makes sense, is geographically you're going to see kind of a kind of a shift west in the U.S. because the U.S. is now in a group for world qualification with Japan and China and Korea and the other countries that previously made up the Pacific Asia curling championship. So San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club with that new facility uh, right along there with the Southern California curling um, curling facility, you know, they're, they're positioned well to kind of be maybe a base of operations for some of these teams when they come, come to North America almost. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, to have two facilities in California, is huge, right? Because it's the mm-hmm. biggest state in the U.S., and they're they're going to be the two largest cities. And we'll, we'll get to the next big one opening in a second. But I think there's a pretty clear track record of once you have one facility in an area, it takes off, and then it becomes a lot easier to open the second facility, right? Because you can show that it works. You can show that in that market there's demand, and once that facility starts operating near capacity, it's then a lot easier to get the funding and the support for a second or third facility. And that's an excellent segue, Jonathan, because off of the success of Denver Curling Club, there will be a second dedicated facility opening in that region. And I, I wanted to, I've brought them up before, but they've been, they're much closer to opening now than they were back when we first talked about them. Back when we talked about them, they were breaking ground, but the Rock Creek Curling Club, a little bit north of Denver in Lafayette, Colorado, they've been posting photos on their Instagram account. And my goodness, that looks like just a gorgeous facility. You really got to check it out, Jonathan. And they may be on my bucket list of of clubs to visit once they're open because it just looks like a phenomenal place to curl. Yeah. I haven't seen the pictures, but I'm sure it's nice. Up next is one that just opened the new dedicated facility in Austin, Texas, which was basically they they bought the arena that they had been playing in and converted it to dedicated. Uh, that's a privately owned group, and that's the one that has hired Tyler George to kind of head up things there. Um, but they just recently opened, so congratulations to the folks in Austin who now have dedicated ice. And then uh, Nashville, it's kind of interesting. This is this is another privately owned group, and it's actually led by former NFL quarterback Mark Bolger. Um, and it's going to have a restaurant, curling, bowling, and it's going to be more of like an entertainment center that also has, you know, it, it's not the the outdoor curling. These are full sheets of curling. And Mark, of course, was part of the all-pro curling team um, that played in, uh, play downs to go to the U S nationals a couple years ago. Uh, so he obviously still really into the curling thing. Um, it clearly wasn't a fad for him cause he has now made it a business venture of his. Yeah. So I think that's big that there's two private 
ventures going on here, right? That that people see they can make money at this as a business. Uh, it may mean like how the facilities are operated are a little bit different, but I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Um, and that that I suspect is probably the way forward in the U.S. That if a couple of these places make a go of it and have a track record, then maybe the investors say, okay, what other markets can we open in? So it almost becomes like a franchise, right? That you have like the Mark Bulger back venture or the Austin back venture start opening rinks in a whole bunch of different places. Yeah, and two two of my favorite cities in. Nashville and Austin. Now, if we can just get a few more of the former Pacific Coast League cities with with dedicated ice, like uh, like New Orleans and Oklahoma City, that'd be, you know, we can bring the Pacific Coast League back, but make it for curling. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, Jonathan, what have we got going on internationally? Lots of stuff. I guess the biggest thing from because like, Olympics is driving everything this cycle is we've got the pre. Olympic qualification event. Yeah, I'm excited for this because this is a lot of a lot of countries that we've featured on our show, um, hoping to stay, hoping to keep their Olympic dreams alive. Um, and it's, I think, this is the first time there's ever been a pre OQE like this, where you do have a lot of emerging curling nations getting to play each other for the right to advance to the next event. And so I guess a couple, so a couple of things are interesting about this. One, there are actually some countries here playing like for the first time ever. So the first yeah. thing they're doing is going into an Olympic qualification event. That may sound a bit bonkers, but, you know, on the other end, that's basically, I think, the hook for curling in a lot of these emerging countries, right? Is mm-hmm. if you can go to your national sports funding body and say, hey, look, we want to set up an organization to compete in curling and we want to kind of pr- promote teams for um, for an Olympic pathway. That's probably the easiest way to get interest in the sport going at the get-go, right? So hmm. the other thing that's interesting is a lot of these teams are in the mixed doubles event, which is just the easiest way to get a team together in the sense you only need two people as opposed to four, right? So, And I think part of the fact that you have two countries that are debuting and they are Kyrgyzstan and Portugal. I think part of that is you've had two world mixed competitions canceled Yeah, in the last, uh, the, the last two have been canceled. And then you didn't have a, a world qualification event last year. Yeah. So I think those are the two things that have kind of led, cause I know for a fact that Portugal was looking at going to the mixed this year and that would have been their debut, but now their debut is here at the pre-Olympic qualifier. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to read through all the teams, but it's... No, it's, I don't. It's <laughs> the three fields. There's, there's think, a lot of them. I mean, it's an interesting field. There's a couple of like countries that... So like in the men's field, right? I'd say Czech Republic and Finland are kind of... Have a, have a let's put it this way they have a longer curling history and they just simply didn't qualify for a world's this cycle and so they're that's why they're in this event that probably means they're the favorites to get out of those pools but there's some other teams in there that could could certainly cause a bit of trouble um on the women's side uh, i think that that one's wide open again norway's kind of probably the conventional curling power that's that didn't qualify for a worlds this cycle so you'd think latvia is another one uh although i'd say they're still emergent like norway's one of the original um 
WCF yeah. teams, right? So countries. Latvia is so. Latvia is usually on the bubble to get to worlds out of the Europeans. Yes, yes, I would agree. And actually, I would say Turkey. Don't sleep on Turkey. Um, Turkey's been. Yeah, their skip is very good. She she skipped their team. I think right. I'm not sure if they were in the tiebreak or if they got into the the playoffs of the world mix that I was at. But she's been kind of putting up good performances in juniors and and women's lately. And the last time there was a WQE, I believe Turkey was the last team out on the women's side. I believe they last they lost the last chance qualifier. Yes, uh, to, get, to get in. Yes, and this is their their it's their at home playing in their home hometown, so mm-hmm. a bit of advantage there too. Uh, mixed doubles is Hungary's also actually had a bit of a decent history there too. So I wouldn't another one that kind of could could do some damage. Um, mixed doubles. I think Denmark kind of jumps out as traditional power that that maybe hasn't um, qualified in the past. Latvia again. Um, not sure. Do you have any other ones you're watching for out of that group? Turkey again. You have uh, the the two skips from the women's team and the men's team. That's your your partnership for the the mixed doubles side for Turkey. So just again, based purely off shot making, I bet they're there. I'd, I'm looking forward to see how. Nigeria does um, both on the mixed double side and on the men's side after, you know, they've gotten a little bit of, of experience under their belt. They're no longer complete newcomers uh, to the curling world. So just to see if they can get some wins under their belt, I think is what I'm looking for there. Yeah. So there's a bunch of good teams. And then, actually in the men's thing, Belgium just qualified out of the sea pool in the Euro men. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of coming in on a bit of a hot streak uh, and it's, Probably a little bit harder, but a similar kind of uh, depth, I'd say, in terms of quality of field. Yes, it'll be it'll be fun just because you any anything can happen when you take some of the more some of the more pro teams, the full time curlers, out of these events. That I think that's what makes this fun. Is it's 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 people who you know who who have regular jobs who are out there doing this. This one's kind of interesting to see who kind of gets to the Olympic qualification event because I think that will be a really interesting tournament, the OQE. Uh, the other, the other big news actually came from Nigeria. I think I don't know what on earth happened, but but basically Nigeria kind of scooped the WCF. Uh, they posted on their Facebook page the schedule for the upcoming Pacific Asia Curling Championships being held in Almaty, Kazakhstan in early November and noticeably absent from both the men's side and the women's side was China. China is not going to the PACC, which means, I mean, unless the WCF like just gives them a pass to the world qualification event, um, no China at the world championships either because the PACCs is how you qualify for worlds. Yeah. I, I would, I would say and this kind of came up last podcast, right? That basically the, the Olympic year worlds is often a bit of a, a letdown of an event, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of the teams that won the, that, that won or medal or compete at the Olympics, they opt out. Um, just because they're burned out. Often it's a place where new teams make their debut. So it's it's kind of interesting in that sense if you're looking for up-and-coming teams. So 
at least under the rules as I understand them, China is not eligible because um, the world qualification event is seeded off results at the Euros and the PAC, right? And the uh, and the Americas Challenge. Yeah, unless the WCF steps in and basically just says, okay, China, just based off of past results, you can go to the WQE without going to the PACC. And I can't imagine anyone would be happy if that ha- if that happened, because that would be a very dangerous precedent to set. So I, I just want to say one last thing on China skipping the PACC. My personal feeling on China skipping this event and skipping the worlds is... China actually has an amazing 21-year-old women's skip in Han Yu, who I think is going to want could wind up being a star in curling. Like I think that that team is a slam team waiting to happen, and I think it's just criminal that they're wasting some of her prime curling years um, by not sending her to this tournament or not going to Worlds. So, well, obviously she will almost certainly be the person skipping them at the Olympics. So she'll get a shot there. But the fact that it looks like they aren't going to play any competition before that tournament, I mean, that's just criminal. And that's not setting them up for success, I think, at all, which is too bad because I think she's an excellent young curler and she has a lot lot more to show the curling world. And I wish she got a chance to do it. Yeah, that's the. I guess we'll. I guess we'll see how that all plays out. Yep, uh, you will. You will have a one debutante sort of at the PACC, and that is Saudi Arabia sending its first four-person team uh, this time on the men's side. So it'll be the the first time you've seen a four-person uh, Saudi Arabian curling team uh, scheduled at uh, this year's PACC. And what's interesting is on the women's side, uh, gold and silver will advance to worlds. On the men's side, just the gold medalists will automatically qualify for worlds every, uh, and then two two spots each for the WQE. So I mean that that's still interesting, right? Because that that could create a path for a country we haven't seen mm-hmm. in the past um, making a run. Because I I suspect. Let's put it this way. I suspect China is not the only country that may opt out of the Worlds this year. That there may be, we saw this the first year they brought in the World Qualification event, and a lot of countries were like, because there's not Olympic points on the line, we can't afford to go to this event. And that may be the case that some countries opt out, and maybe some, some keen countries might take advantage of that as a way to qualify for Worlds. The Czech Republic women were the probably the the biggest name that opted out of that first world qualification event. And the reason for that was based off of, based off of what they had previously done. They already had a spot in the upcoming Olympic qualification event. Mm -hmm. So that's why on the women's side, they did not send their team to the WQE, but you're going to see because New Zealand and Australia will also not be at the PACC. So you will see a an, an up-and-coming curling country at, at the uh, world qualification event, regardless of what happens on the men's side. And you'll probably see two of them on the women's side. Yeah. So, and that'll be interesting. It's good to see kind of new countries qualify. Although I do think it, I mean, in the broader context of things, I think this is 
why they killed the world qualification event. It, right? it that, is. that really the, the change in this, this new structure with the Americas, the whatever the pan continental challenge or whatever they're calling it. Um, <laughs> and the, and the euros, I think as we said last time, it's, it's a better move, but, but one of the problems is the old system clearly wasn't working. If countries are opting out, you don't really want a world championship where countries are just saying, well, we don't want to go to your world championship this year. And that's yeah. kind of happened twice in this quad. So clearly that's that's an issue. You wanna go slams? No. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan hates the slams. All right. <laughs> I think okay. It's not that I hate them, it's that I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. I would all right, I would much rather watch the pre-Olympic qualification event than a slam. Does that make me weird? Well, you didn't get up in the morning to watch South Sydney play in the National Rugby League and (laughs) in a version of rugby that basically nobody in the Northern Hemisphere follows. Unless you're, what is it? It's the M6 corridor. Is that it? Is that right? Did I get that right? All right. Yeah. In the Northern Hemisphere, it's basically the M6 corridor and me. Yeah, basically. Uh, so, um, <laughs> the slam, all right. I, I, I want to pick up on this for a couple of things because the girls touched on it really quickly in their podcast. And we've had a bit of banter with the game of stones guys on a, a chat that we have. And I think this is actually a significant story, right? So the slams this year, half the teams on the men's side are international. And on the Mm -hmm. women's side, only five of the 16 teams are Canadian. So by international, I mean non-Canadian. That's, I think, significant. Maybe it's slightly skewed because the pandemic made it hard for points accumulation. But... So so just in case... Yeah. Just in case, and I do want to call time out because... Every podcast is somebody's first. So just really briefly explain how teams qualify for the slams. Okay, that's a good point. So the way teams qualify for the slams is off what's called the order of merit, right? Which is, it's been rebranded the world curling team rankings, and it's been taken over by the WCF. We actually have a podcast episode with Jerry Gertz, who's kind of the originator of this system, who kind of walked us through it early in the pandemic when everyone was available and it was easy to get people like Jerry for, for a podcast. And I would, I would encourage you to go listen to it and he explains why and how that system works. So what a team has to do is go out and play often in lower tier bond spiels and accumulate enough points to then qualify for high tier bond spiels and then do well enough there to then qualify for a slam. And so I'll just pick one of our favorite teams, which we'll, we'll, we'll get to in a second. So Team Ross White has qualified for the slam. This is the first slam they've qualified for. They're just out of junior. If you follow their season, they've had a really, really good season so far. And that's let them build up enough points so that they're ranked high enough to get into the slam. Um and actually, by some metrics, like under the, the there's a different set of ratings done by Ken Pomeroy, which we did an episode with him too. So you can go pull that up too. He uses a system which essentially predicts how strong a team is based on who they've beaten and uh, who they've lost to. So Ross White 
um, lost the final of the Euro Super Series, which is an event put on by British Curling. Uh, lost, got a, had a pretty deep run and lost to Dunstone in a playoff game at the Stu Cells Tankard. Won the KW, lost to Kevin Cooey in the final of the Okotoks Classic. So they, they've basically played five of uh, four events so far and made deep runs against good teams. And they've beaten teams like Adin, De Cruz. Uh, they beat Dunstone somewhere, beat Pat Ferris. They've beaten a lot of good teams to kind of rack up some points, right? Um, we've been we've been on Ross White since he still had acne and glasses and was beating you as a fourteen year old. Well, he still has glasses. <laughs> no, I think he ditched him. I think he ditched him. Uh, I don't know. I think he, I think he got contacts, man. Oh, maybe. All right. Or LASIK. Maybe he got LASIK. Maybe, Brit- yeah, maybe British- some of the British curling budget's gone for... Uh, I was about to say, does British LASIK. curling have enough budget now to pay for LASIK? <laughs> maybe it does. <laughs> anyway, the point is... Um, okay, so a couple things. So, so basically, they've put on a run where they've been able to accumulate enough points to qualify. So mm-hmm. I guess if you're, if you're not Canadian pessimist, the, the story here is this is a weird set of results because of the pandemic. A lot of Canadian teams couldn't go out and tour and accumulate points. But if you're, as I am, perhaps a bit more A, international optimist, so non-Canadian optimist, and B, kind of concerned about the future of the Canadian game, uh, I think this is a sign of where things are headed, where the slams will probably um, be majority international for the foreseeable future. And, and part of the reason why is if you go through the men's and women's list, most of the teams that qualified are program teams. They're either the A or the B teams from national programs and mm-hmm. like the, the big curling countries. So like Geneva, so like Switzerland, Sweden, you know, uh, Great Britain, um, Japan, Korea, right? All, all these kind of emerging powers, the USA, right? So, and, and none of the teams that qualified is a shocker. Right. It's like from USA, you've got uh, Schuster and you've got uh, Rich. Right. I don't Uh, think she did. Oh, he's not there. Maybe he just did not qualify. Maybe he just didn't enter. I don't know. But you have you have Ruinen in there. Um, And on the women's side, you have uh, you have Tabitha Peterson from the USA. Right. You've Mm -hmm. got you've got Unchi Kim from Korea. You've got. Unjun Kim from Korea, and you've got Minji Kim from Korea. So you've got three Korean women's teams qualifying, and that's not a surprise, right? Because no. they're they're all consistently top fifteen these days. So you've got Alina Kovaleva, who's top, easily top ten, possibly top five right now in the world. Uh, a lot of Japanese teams, so Yoshimura, Korana, uh, Fujisawa, right? So I think it's a big deal. <laughs> what do you think? So I, I do think it's a big deal as as a fellow expansionist. You know, I think that that's more of how I would how I would rate our podcast is we are both expansionists. So things like this, where more international teams are getting to play in Grand Slams, which allow you to make more money um, and allow you to curl more. Um, I think we I think we think of that as a as a positive. Now it is one thing that these are mainly funded curlers like i i don't think they're out doing a nine to five job and throwing rocks on their lunch break for the for the most part yeah um i i think this is more because in canada 
the focus is on becoming the Canadian Olympic team more so than than anything else, even more than their their championships, the Briars and the Scotties Tournament of Hearts. And so what you've seen is you've seen consolidation of talent. So you look at some of these teams that are the top teams on the Canadian side and look at those lineups and ask yourself, in 1996, before the Olympics had curling in them, how many of these players would have skipped their own teams and tried to be the skip that led his team to the briar? Like, look at look at Gushu's team. How many of those guys would be skipping teams in Newfoundland, in Labrador? Like, I'm pretty sure Nichols. I'm pretty sure Nichols would be skipping his own team. Maybe. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Glant would be skipping a team out of PEI. PEI, yeah. Look at look at um, Matt Dunstone adding Kirk Myers to play second. That's a guy who skipped a team to the Briar and then joined another team to play second because he thought it gave him a better chance to make the Olympics. So I think that's why you're seeing it on the Canadian side. I think that there's, if the Olympics did not exist, I think you would see 10 more quality teams at least. And it would still be very, Canadian focused at the at the Grand Slams if yeah. you took the Olympics out of the picture. Yeah. So I'm just going to go off the the Ken Pomeroy rankings which are doubletakeout.com cuz I think there's a couple of reasons. I think the points right now are a bit murky until we get probably to December time just cuz there haven't been that many events. And the thing that's good about the Ken Palm ratings is they 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 can kind of figure out a rating system off off a small sample size of games. It's fairly accurate. Yeah, you want to talk about consolidation of talent, look no further than the team that is second in Kim Pomeroy's rankings on the women's side, which is Carrie Anderson's team out of Manitoba, which is a team that came together because four players that previously skipped their own teams came together with the goal of going to the Olympics. Yeah. That's four, that's four that's three additional top quality women's teams if you give those other three players their own team. Yeah. Now, if, if you look at those rankings, it's interesting, too, because you have Holman, Einerson, one and two, in the Worlds. And that makes sense because they are they basically battle each other in the Scotties and have, have kind of built up a very good tour record the last few years. Tiranzoni, number three, who's basically been winning every Worlds this, this quad. So uh, no surprise there. Kovaleva. Maybe that might catch some people off guard, but they've had a very good run last year and are seven and zero this year. So number four, she just finished. She just won silver at Worlds. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. I'm not. I'm not saying that I'm finding it shocking, but I think sometimes we have a bit of banter online, and and the Canadian fans of our podcast sometimes go, ah, oh, you know, it's it's because each of those countries has one good team, and Canada has twenty good teams, right? And actually, not so much anymore. But if you go down from 11 to 20, it's still about half international teams. It's actually even more than half international teams. It's, it's six international teams and four Canadian teams. And it's really only when you get into the 30s that you have this kind of wave of red again, of, of Canadian flags. that you know, uh, the, And that's basically where the national program teams start to peter out. So it's basically from 30 on down, the depth shows up. But to be honest, those teams are probably, you know, in the old way, Madal language, those are the Joes, which, which he meant is like, those are the people who kind of have, um, you know, a day job, curl on the weekends, 
But then there's the pros who are basically the program teams who get funded to curl full time. And so we have that kind of separation really starting to, to show up now. On the, on the women's side in Canada, I think it's you, you have two teams that are just stardust. And then you have everyone else is, is, is kind of on the same level for, for a while. Like you have a lot of parity outside of the two teams that are at the top of their game right now, which is Homan and Anderson. Whereas on the men's side, I think you've only got like five or six teams and pretty much every year it's going to be those teams in the, the playoffs at the Canadian championships, the Briar. Whereas on the women's side, when the women, when the women hold their Canadian championship, the Scotty's tournament of hearts, you've got two teams that you're pretty sure are going to be there in Homan and Anderson. But then outside of that, really anything else could happen. Yeah. In the Scotties, you mean? Yeah. In the Scotties. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I would say, I would say if we were to run the Scotties again with this list, Holman and Anderson, I'd be like likely to make the finals, certainly top four. Flurry's going to be in the playoffs for sure. Jones is always a playoff threat. And then there's like a, 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 a tier say from Laura Walker through Holly Duncan of teams that I think are maybe even further down, like Sherry Anderson at 40 or something, who is like. Like they're always going to be a threat and a decent shot to qualify for the championship pool, but then they kind of run into those pro teams, and it's a it's like basically a buzzsaw come the weekend, right? And that's that's the script we see every year, and I think that's not and it's not a knock on those teams, but there's a there's a big gap between Holman and Einerson who who are basically able to do it full time and funded and everything else versus. Teams that are very good talent-wise but have day jobs, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, shoot, right now, man, I think there's a huge gap between Homan and Anderson and everyone else. <laughs> I'd say, I would say I would say if you if you woke me up the day after the trials and Flurry or Jones won, I'd be like, that's a bit surprising but not shocked. But if you told me that um, Kerry Galusha won, I'd be kind of stunned. Let's put it that way. So I think there's like a little, like a, a, a second tier and then a third tier, if that makes sense. What about the men's side? I think the men's side's striking too, because right now it goes Bruce Mowat, number one team in the world. And given both the bubble experience they had and then the, the start they've had to the season, that's not a surprise at all. Then it's basically the big five in Canada, which is Gushu, Jacobs, Cooey, Botcher, Dunstone, Right. And if you, if you, the safest bet in curling is saying the Canadian Olympic representative is going to come from those five, right? Yeah, somebody somebody asked, okay, give us some predictions for the Canadian pre-trials leading into and then the, the Canadian trials. And like I, I'm going to be very boring and go chalk. And well, maybe not. I don't know if this is chalk, but I'm going to say Holman and Botcher. All right. If you, I, I think Cooey. I think I'll go Cooey. I just think that team. It's like they're they just they're all vets and they have this weird knack for just showing up at Olympic qualifiers, right? Johnny Mo, Kevin Cooey, uh, so you know uh, Ben Hebert, right? They are just all like <laughs> basically qualified. Someone from that list has basically qualified for an Olympics all through the 2010s. So. Um, 
I in, until I see them destroyed. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I'm not going to count them out. I think they're the most dangerous team there. Women's side. I don't know. What do you think? I just, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why. I just think that. I think at the end of the day, it'll be Holman. Ah, that's like I, that's the safest pick out there, right? And I kind of I'll go a step further, and I'll kind of think that that's your redemption story, and they win gold in Beijing. Yeah, there's a a friend of mine pointed out that all the way back to juniors, Holman mm-hmm. has this interesting track record of going somewhere to an event the first time, struggling figuring it out, coming back and just destroying the second time. Like first yes. Canadian junior struggled, second time tore through, right? First time at the Scotties struggled, second time tore through. Struggled at the Olympic trials the first time, tore through it and like back at whatever, right? So it's like it's like she she gets better every time out. Mm-hmm. And I still think she's I still think her team is on the ascension. They're not like I mean they've they've been around so long now that we think they're old, but mm-hmm. they're she's actually just entering prime curling age right that like jen jones only really started winning national yeah. level stuff in canada in her early 30s and holman's already got three three national titles and an olympics to her to her name like you think about it with that new lineup that Holman team is still kind of in that storming phase <laughs> yeah and they're the, I, I think they're i think they're looking to i think that they'll peak in beijing yeah i can you know i think they're yeah, I think they'll be dangerous for sure. Um, again, like I said, like, I think like if you're looking for like potential ups, I don't even think Tracy Hort Floor is like a super dark horse, but I think they've had a pretty solid quad and are kind of peaking at the right time. So I think they might be like a playoff team that could do damage come playoff time, right? I don't know. I, I'll I'll still say that. There, you've got you've got two teams that are stardust, and then a bunch of really really good teams. But you have two teams that are in a in a stratosphere that's their own. We had a few Twitter questions, Ryan. Did yeah, you, so we yeah we just we we just spent way too much time talking about grand slams and elites, and <laughs> <laughs> gotten we've gotten away from from the truly important things in curling, like the like how Kyrgyzstan is going to do at the pre-Olympic qualifier. Uh, yeah, we did get, we got a couple of, of questions via Twitter when I, when I asked, when I asked for, for questions for this episode and we just answered one of them, which came from Max M on Twitter. Uh, the other question we had was it, it it was about curling event nomenclature. This came from Rockheads, which is the all things curling group on Facebook. They wanted to know why so many events are called a classic. And I think it's that you basically, it's the same nomenclature as golf. Like you have events that are opens where everyone's welcome to, to enter an event. You have invitationals, which obviously just, invites are sent out. You have events that call themselves the Canadian Open that are actually the Canadian Invitational because that event is not open. It's actually strictly invitational. So if you aren't an Open or an Invitational, the number of things that you can call your event are basically Challenge, Cup, or a Classic. And that really works for curling because you can get that alliteration with the whatever curling classic uh, or the whatever curling challenge. But curling classic sounds better. So I think most people go that way. What do you think? 
Yeah, I I actually hate the way curling bonspiels are called. I think they're like like uninspired. <laughs> like, it's, well, yeah, it, they're just borrowed from golf. Yeah, I mean, like the slams. I'm like, I, I, I don't know, just better. Like, the, honestly, the best name is the Players Championship because that comes out of the World Curling Tour name, right? I think the other ones, it's like I know there's a Players Championship in golf, but and the Masters, there's a Masters, the Masters. In the, there's a Masters in the Grand Slam, and there are Masters yeah. that is in the in golf too. And it's like, but but they don't match. They don't match. Like the ma- the Masters. Anyway, it's, it's a long rant that I've revisited many times, but I, I kind of wish they they had a better sense of place. I, I think in most sports, events that have a sense of place, um, like basically it's going to be in this location, this place is special for this reason, really kind of a evocative event that builds up tradition. Um, you know, and, and a lot of the classics aren't that classic. They're quite old, right? <laughs> so Yeah, you got to be... In in my opinion, you have to be an old event to be called a classic. Yeah, and then like we actually have some great names, like the Briar and the Scotties. I think are great names, mm-hmm. and they, they had other ones that were great, and they got rid of them for sponsorship reasons, like the Silver Broom. That's like a that's a great curling specific name for an event. Like maybe bring that because I keep saying that the Canadian Mixed Doubles Championship needs a cool name. Maybe bring back the Silver Broom for that. Yeah, I think something like that. Like, I would like to see more of like curling specific stuff. And I know, I know, we lost the giant beer stein uh, <laughs> when Labatt stopped sponsoring the Briar. But and I know that it was only for a certain period of time. But boy, that was that was the best trophy in curling, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you win, you win the tournament. You have to lift up this giant gold beer stein. That's that's what it's all about. Uh, the other couple other questions from Twitter. What are the merits of various stone and house designs or colors of curling stone handles? Why do we see so much red and yellow handles and red and blue houses? What you got? I mean, the red and blue house designs, the classic one, right? I don't know why. I guess it's just primary colors and it's actually fairly easy to see down the length of the ice. I actually think there's been a lot more variation lately. Like if you go like the flower bowl, it's it's nothing. <laughs> if you go look at it on, go Google the yeah. flower bowl in Preston, like that design's not, not traditional in any way, shape or form. And actually was fairly controversial with some of the purists. Although I, I quite like it. I think it's like a bit different. I do and too. Bit fun. Yeah. I think more, uh, I think more, uh, more curling rinks should make their entire sheet look like you're curling on pebbles, not pebble, but pebbles. Pebbles. I mean, it's it's because it's part of a garden center, and so it's actually not just pebbles. It's got like plants and like flowers. Like each each button is a different flower. It's I like it. Um, that question came from Nick in Omaha. Like with the handles. Like they're actually, I remember because we had we broke a few handles in uh, the Oklahoma Curling Club, and uh, there are not that many handle choices out there. Like we had to call around to some of the rock suppliers, and they're just if you think about what a niche product it is, and how rarely um, a club needs new handles because in theory they're in, they're not indestructible because we destructed some of them, but um, they don't get broken. They're just plastic. They're just plastic, but they don't get broken that often unless you have. Uh, people like us using them. Um, but it was it actually, cause I had to call around and get suppliers and like, 
like basically even we had white and blue and even finding a white and blue combo that matched our white and blue was a bit tricky because ours were from like the 90s um so they were 20 years old so there's just not that many suppliers of curling handles out there what's the craziest curling handle color that you've seen like have you seen orange nope i think black and white maybe i don't know I think I've seen red. I mean, just think all the colors I've seen: red, yellow, blue, black, white. I think those are all the colors I've ever seen. You seen any other colors? I've seen green. Green. I think yeah, we green. Have, we we have green. <laughs> yeah, green. Maybe I've seen some green. And then the other question that we had, which was from Curling Clips, their Twitter account, we kind of started talking about lineup variations and where having your having your skip and vice in, in various slots in the one through four lineup i guess i'll i'm going to kind of change up their question and i'll ask you what are the advantages to having your skip throw say first second or third rather than fourth yeah i mean i think i actually think that makes a lot of sense because Okay, I, I am not a neuroscientist, but I have done the throw last rocks and not skip uh, thing. And I actually like that the most because mm. it, it, it's just if you're skipping, you're spending a lot of mental energy. If you're doing it well, reading the ice, thinking strategy, there's a lot of that part. And then the mental pressure of having to throw, say, a pressure draw or make a big shot is like more stress on top of it. And so I think actually if you can break that in half, that load in half, I think you can have a lot of success with it. And I'm a, I was actually surprised that it didn't take off more, not just after the Furby 4, but in the early 2000s, you had the Furby 4, and then you had like Russ Howard and Brad Gushu, right? And I honestly think that part of the reason that worked is that Brad could just focus on making shots, and you had one of those, the smartest skips ever read ice and call the game. And he just, you know, went played second. He was easy for him because he'd been throwing skip for years. And, um, you know, the other two just were brutes who showed up and swept. <laughs> it's like, it was like, it was a killer combo. The same thing with the Furby four was just, um, you know, Furby, I, I, Fur, I think Furby's a bit of a character and you think he basically always threw third and just wanted to throw third just cause he's a bit, he's just like, that's the way I've always done it. And so he just didn't want it. Like he certainly could have thrown skips rocks, but, I just got the sense he always liked throwing third, and that's why he wanted to throw third. Uh, and so he basically, when they got Neto in, who was like a, a young guy just coming out of juniors, he just said, okay, if you can throw skip, that's great. And so, and I think that let a young thrower, again, not have to worry so much about building up the strategy part of the game and just, just kind of develop their shooting and kind of rely a lot more on, on an experienced skip to call the game. Interestingly, Brad Jacobs, when he started out, did the same thing with his uncle. The first couple of briars he went to, his uncle skipped the team and Brad threw last rocks. And that, I think, also helped him later on develop, kind of get the experience of throwing last rocks. And uh, then, you know, I'd also kind of learn through his uncle and then kind of become a top skip that way, too. I'm just going to go ahead and say that uh, leads are the smartest people on the planet and they should be the ones uh, skipping. I've seen that combo too. There was uh, the Furlands, uh, who were like a brother combo in Quebec, uh, a little bit older than me. So, they, but they've kind of made a few briars, and they had their their father, who was a top coach and a good competitive curler back in his day. I remember one season they had him 
skip and throw leads rocks. Do you want to wrap up? Yeah, I think we've, I think we've covered it all. Thanks to everybody who sent in questions. Uh, thanks for everybody who stuck with us while we talked about slams. I know that uh, hopefully some of you hate talking about the slams as much as I do. So the other thing I don't like is I don't like talking about the elite teams because I, like, I genuinely like all of these people and I don't want anyone to think like that I like certain teams and don't like others. The fact is I like all of these people and I want them all to do great. And I want them all to win Olympic gold medals and that, that can't happen. So that's kind of why I would rather talk about growing the game in other places is the chance to talk about, I don't know, things that are going to get more people playing this game rather than arguing over whether or not curler a is better than curler B. Um, that's just always been more interesting to me. I mean, I I don't mind it. I I assume they're I, I assume they don't care what we have to think. First of all, <laughs> I'd be surprised if Kevin Cooey cared what we had to say. Um, but uh, mainly, I just don't want Cooey fans in my mentions telling me how horrible I am for picking Brendan Botcher when it's just like, look, man, like I'm I'm picking them to win a curling event. This isn't. It's not like. <laughs> It's yeah. like something that matters. <laughs> so I think I think three things. One, I think we try not to be mean when we we cover these things. Like it's basically, we try to say what we'd say to their face if they were there. Um, <laughs> you know, I, and I can't see anyone being offended by us favoring Botcher or Cooey over each other. I think if you follow Botcher's Twitter, they they basically they basically acknowledge that too, right? Um, I think some of our fans. By the way, great show, great interview on Game of Stones with the person who runs the Team Botcher Twitter account. Please go listen to that. It is fantastic. Yeah. And again, as a marketing person, I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think picks is always a mugs game, right? Because unless, like, I don't think there's much um, insight into who's going to win. I think, and that's the case in any sport, right? The reason sports is interesting is because. Um, like we don't know who's going to win, right? I think I think we can, and then we could kind of el- eliminate a set of teams that just they're they're good teams, but it's not likely they're going to win the trials. And I think a lot of them are actually quite honest. Like, um, you know, Mike. I remember we we played Mike Fournier uh, two years ago now, I guess in Ottawa, and he basically was honest. Like our team's goal was to qualify for the pre-trials. Like he thought that was like what they could hope to do. Obviously, they're going to try to qualify out of the pre-trials for the trials, but that was their team's goal for that cycle. He's like, there's no way we can get enough points to automatically qualify, but we go to the pre-trials and hope we have a good week. Like, he he wasn't thinking, like, if I said to him, like, Kevin Cooey is a better curler than you, he would be like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I still want to go play in a briar, <laughs> right? And so, I think most curlers at the competitive end are pretty aware of where they are in the pecking order. And I'd say that's even all the way down to like competitive B or C teams. Right. So, um, okay. I think actually the most delusional curlers I encounter are the ones at the club level, but that's, that's another topic for another day. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's pretty much me, <laughs> but you, you will occasionally encounter someone at the club level who's like, yeah, I could beat Cooey in a game head on head. I'm like, <laughs> cool, man. Cool. Go back and enjoy your C division. <laughs> 
<laughs> CD, CDs and Wednesdays. When we go to do, if we if we decide to do picks for the Olympics, I will have my two year old also also pick. And if if he beats both of us, then it'll be like the bad beer bet. We have to do something terrible if he beats both of us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are doing the bad beer bet with Game of Stones. I hope I, I've missed that. I hope we do that again. All the way down to the B pool, as always. I tell you what, I in as I told you and them, I recently purchased the Fall Flavors collection of Bud Light's seltzer offerings. Um, all of them are absolutely terrible, and I am saving them up for when we beat uh, when we beat Sean and Scott in the in the bad beer bed for for Euros because uh, they're both going to have to drink toasted marshmallow. That's for sure. <laughs> Can they get that in Canada or is it banned? It's probably banned in Canada. I'm going to ship it to them. I will pay for that. I'm going to pay for that international shipping. Just if it, if it means them having to drink one of these things, I will gladly spend that money. Oh, deadly. All right. Well, that's it for this week. Got anything else, Ryan? I'm, I'm good, man. All right. Have some fun. I guess you got to watch the Hokies lose or something. Or where are you the rest of the month? Uh, going to a music festival that is actually on the, it's the same grounds where my wife and I got married. We got married, um, where this music festival takes place. So we're going, we're going there for the first time in three years. We had two COVIDs and a baby. So it's been three years since we've gotten to go to, to this festival. So we're looking forward to it. Um, and then, uh, I am going to, and then I'm going to a wedding in Austin, Texas. So I will miss the Virginia tech pit game. And then. Hang on. Will you go to curl Austin when you're there? I might, I might, I might have to see if I can do that. And then, yeah. um, and then I am going to see tech lose to Syracuse at the end of the month. So busy, busy month for me. It sounds good. I don't have much going on this month, to be honest. That's school starting up again. So that's exciting. All right. Good luck with that. Fail them all. <laughs> you got to pass them so they can keep paying the bills, man. No, you got to fail them so that they have to take your class again. Oh, uh, yeah, then they pay more money. That's right. All right. Keep you could be the, a dean. Just, <laughs> that kind of strategic thinking will get you in the dean's is, office. This is That's what happens when you put a marketing person uh, in as the dean. Well, if, we, if we just fail them, they have to, they have to take the class again. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.